Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to the very first edition of The Leadership List, interviews with authors from Command Professional Reading Lists. I'm your host, George Maurer. Welcome. Today, I'm featuring a book from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Professional Reading List titled The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations, authored by Ori Brofman and Rod A. Beckstrom. Coming up in today's interview, Let Go and Watch Your People Shine, How Closed Thinking Led to the Most Useless Job in the World, President of the Internet, and why American leadership remains the greatest hope for achieving world peace. And I'm very fortunate to have Rod Beckstrom as my guest today. You are the absolute perfect first guest. Welcome, Rod. Thank you. Pleased and honored to be here. Your resume is truly remarkable. At the age of 24, you created a company called Cats Software, which helped financial institutions with risk management. You were one of the people who helped develop security and stability for the basic domain structures of the Internet. In the wake of 9-11, you were appointed as the founding director of the U.S. National Cyber Security Center, as well as senior advisor to the director of national intelligence. When the United States government needed to create policies for a brand new battlefield, cyberspace, they called you. And you currently serve as founder and CEO of your own company called, oddly enough, Beckstrom. (laughs) And you guide some of the most powerful institutions in the world on solutions for success and security in the digital world. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're you're very kind to... to, uh you know, state that they're so significant. I, I've been extremely fortunate to to have a lot of great leadership opportunities. And so it's funny when I reflect on my own life, I often think about what I didn't do or what I could have done better. So I don't tend to like revel in the accomplishments, but I do feel extremely fortunate that I've, I've had so many leadership opportunities. Um, and um, the amazing thing is for the last 24 years or so, I, I've not sought any of them. I, I haven't sought any positions. I've just let things come to me, literally, and uh, uh, including the book. And the book actually led to the opportunity with the Director of National Intelligence and serving the U.S. government. So, Rod, what is the metaphor behind the starfish and the spider? Why did you use those two creatures? Sure. Well, I was going to give a lecture at Stanford Business School to to a group of 60 CEOs from around the world, members of Young Presidents Organization. And I was introducing these concepts that we had developed. And the working title of my presentation was The Decentralized Revolution. And and, and then just by chance, I was having dinner with a, a renowned oceans ecologist, Dr. Jane Lubchenco, um, a couple of weeks before. And I, I told her about this concept that we're thinking of writing a book about. And I told her about the lecture I was going to do at Stanford. And she goes, you have to study the blue Linkia starfish. The Linkia starfish is the most incredible decentralized organism. You've got to study it. And so I did the next day. I started researching on the internet. I'm like, wow, this blue Linkia is amazing, you know? And, and, and uh, so... And, and it's because the starfish, this blue linkia, you can you can cut off the arms, and it doesn't just regrow the arm, but the arm can regrow an entire new starfish. So it's actually a divisible animal. And um, 
So I'm like, okay, I got the starfish, and I thought, well, why don't I? Uh, what could be the corollary along with this? If the starfish is decentralized, what creature is centralized? And 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 most animals and creatures are. But I wanted something that kind of looked like a starfish and maybe rhymed or played, and so I, I came up with a spider. So I we at the speech. I, I, I contrasted starfish and spiders, and we came up with the story of, you know, the, the, the spider, if you cut an, a leg off, it doesn't grow back. It's just a crippled seven-legged spider or six-legged spider to get cut off. But if you cut off the head or the thorax, it dies because it's centralized. So these two creatures, the spider represents centralized organisms because if you cut off the head, it dies. And the starfish represents decentralized organisms because if you cut off an arm, you just get another starfish. The starfish and the spider, very good choices. <laughs> Your association with the United States government began shortly after 9-11. Tell me the story of how you became the founding director of the U.S. National Cybersecurity Center. Yeah, well, it all started on 9-11 for me, in a way. You know, I was in, in, in New York watching the towers burn, and I'd been inside them probably at least 200 times. Because my first software company, you mentioned Cat Software, had 15 different clients in those towers, different firms. So as I watched the towers burn, I was trying to figure out who was probably getting trapped in that building above the fire line and who was below. And it was a, a very horrific feeling. And uh, I wanted to go and help. And then I realized I, I couldn't get there. I, I was at the airport, but I could, I could see the towers with my naked eyes. They, they deboarded us. We And... Uh, as I, I decided to take a moment of silence to think about all those inside uh, who are suffering, and the following beautiful words came to me, which was, it's a small world, it's a fragile world, and no one is safe until everyone is safe, and you are called to serve the peace. And that led me to um, actually wound down out of almost all my tech business activities within two months and dedicated my life to saying, what, what could I do to help counteract what was going on with Al-Qaeda and, and, and in the world? And we built a peace network. And from that experience, we got these insights on how decentralized networks work, which led to the book, The Starfish and the Spider. And it was heavily studying Al-Qaeda that contributed in any way that the, the DNI picked up that book and the director of national intelligence, uh, that was Admiral Mike McConnell, a great man. And then he recruited me to be on his senior advisory group. And I was approved by Congress. I did that. And I was brainstorming with him one day on how to use game theory in cyberspace internationally. And he just said, you're it. And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm it. He goes, well, I was just having lunch with President Bush and Dick Cheney yesterday. And we were noticing how when the uh, uh, adversaries attack our intelligence and defense facilities in, in, in cyberspace, uh, they'll, they'll go after one for several months. And then once they're cleaned out of the system, they just move to the next target inside the system. And we're not, we're not sharing any information. We're not, we're not coordinating across departments and agencies in intelligence and defense. And so we've decided to stand up a, a national group to coordinate all the, the six top centers. And I want you to come run it. Because you get it. Because he said, with what you've expressed with this game theory here and what you've done with the Starfish and Spider book, you understand collaboration, you understand networks, you're the guy, you need to come do this. So that's how the conversation started. And my initial response was, well, thank you very much, but I'm living in Palo Alto and I've got two kids in high school, so not the right time and right place for me to do that. And he looked at me and said, Rod, the President of the United States and I are asking you 
to come and serve. So anyway, <laughs> that's that's how it got started. <laughs> now, it's been said when the president of the United States asks you to do something, you pretty much do it. Now, was that your take <laughs> on this? Yes, uh, yeah, that, that's the case. And, and it was funny, I, I was speaking with uh, another former deputy director of, of the NSA at this event. I said, hey, Mike, just, you know, uh, Admiral McConnell just asked me to, to stand up this new National Cybersecurity Center, but you know, I don't think it really makes sense. I said, but he tried to entice me by telling me it reports directly to four cabinet members, the Secretary of Defense, DNI, Attorney General, and the Secretary of DHS. And he says there hasn't been a quadruple-headed position before. What do you think? And he goes, well, he goes, well, Rod, I think you should at least interview for the job. You're going to meet some interesting people. <laughs> and so I literally went back to Admiral McConnell and said, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to interview for the job. Nice. And he's like, great, great. And jumped on the phone to a, a cabinet member to set up the, the first interview the next day. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. Values are a stronger binding force than authority. Now, you already touched upon this, but perhaps your biggest challenge as director of the National Cybersecurity Center was getting the various government agencies to cooperate. <laughs> what were some of the challenges you had to overcome? Well, is it, 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 a, a few things. Is when I finally uh, decided to take the job and pass muster with the interviews, I, I was sitting down speaking with the, the, the DNI and he says to me, he says, Rod, let me, let me tell you what this job's going to be like. I said, yeah, tell me. He goes, well, it's like I'm throwing you in a dark room and everybody in the room has got a knife <laughs> except you. <laughs> and he said, if, if he said, if you just try to be friendly with everybody and just be nice with everybody, he goes, you're not going to get anything done. Uh, and he goes, on the other hand, he goes, if you're, you're too feisty uh, and, and you get uh, too much conflict, you know, he goes, then you're going to get sliced to pieces. And <laughs> that was a sobering introduction to the job. And it was a quite accurate dis description except one point. And that is he told me that all the guys in the room had a knife, but he didn't tell me that the very, very smart, capable women had too. Um, and uh, I, it, it was a hot situation. Um, there, you know, someone else said aptly, they said, Rod, you not only jumped into the hottest frying pan in Washington, D.C., in the middle of the struggle over all the authorities of this new National Cybersecurity Center that each one of the components would like to control themselves. Not only have you jumped in the hottest pan, but you're in the hottest spot in the hottest pan. So welcome to Washington, D.C. So, uh, yeah, it, it was it was pretty hot and heavy. Um in the sense that, you know, when you're dealing with NSA, CIA, uh, Department of Defense, uh, DIA, you know, other intelligence groups uh, and significant parties at the table, there's, there's a lot of power there. And cyber was obviously is a very uh, coveted and important activity. So it was an intense battle and made all the more intense because it was, I won't get into all the details, but say it was roughly a balanced battle at the table, which meant that it was a real and serious prolonged dogfight. Um Having said that, we, we prevailed. We got our con ops not only done, but signed off by the President of the United States, um, which, which I'm very proud of what the team and the interagency group uh, achieved. But let me tell you, it was, it was hot and heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Now, 
Getting into the content of your book, a leaderless organization should be absolute chaos, right? I mean, how can anything function properly without a leader? At the greatest extreme, a leaders, leaderless organization is chaos at the extreme. And, and uh, you know, if you look at a public riot, you know, or a, uh, some kind of burst of the mob in response to an action, that, that's a, it's a very chaotic action. But in most organizations, even decentralized, there is some structure. And that's what we figured out uh, through the work of studying Al-Qaeda and, and working to build a global network of CEOs that grew to 4,000 CEOs taking part in it, that we actually figured out there's a, a set of architectural elements in decentralized networks. Because if they were pure chaos, then we wouldn't call them a network. Um, and an example would be, I wouldn't have thought, you know, when we wrote the book that this was going to go change the world of currencies so quickly. But if you look at cryptocurrencies and everything that's happened, that's an, Bitcoin is an example of an extremely decentralized currency. And it absolutely is a currency in the economic sense, but no one's in charge of it. But there is a community who's engaged together and who, who rest, you know, developed the protocol and, and, and who helped to govern it. Um, uh, so at the extreme, it's chaos, but pull back a little bit and you start getting structure. And if you keep adding more and more structure and more controls, then you'll start moving to the left side of the table, as we call it, or equation, and you get to, to a more centralized organization. tip from the starfish and the spider. The sweet spot leads to the greatest success, and it never stays in one place. Now, what you're talking about in your book, you called it the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Many who work in organizations like the Defense Department will never be able to create a true starfish leaderless group but they can create what you call a hybrid. And I think that's what you're alluding to here, a balance between the starfish and the spider. How could one achieve that balance in the DOD and what are the expected outcomes? Sure, let's take a real quick concrete example, Hurricane Katrina, you know, enormous nat national disaster that, that we face at New Orleans suffered. And look at the response of two different government agencies. One being FEMA, which is extremely centralized and top-down, and the other being the U.S. Coast Guard. Bo both components of the same department, by the way, DHS. The Coast Guard is extremely decentralized in the sense that the, 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 the captain of that vessel, the number one on the vessel, the commanding officer, is totally in charge of running rescue operations. Doesn't have to call anywhere for permission on what to do. In fact, he or she is charged with rescuing human lives to the greatest extent they can and are only communicating back to get support and maybe we'll report in later, but there's no question they're supposed to take action. And the Coast Guard were, you know, unquestionably heroes in Katrina. And it was that that relatively decentralized uh, command structure of the Coast Guard that enabled them to do that. Um, and if you think of the primary task of the Coast Guard, which is in general rescuing lives or, or interdicting, you know, criminals and, and, and drug dealers in the high seas, it, it can be a fairly decentralized uh, activity. But so that's one example. FEMA, on the other hand, is very centralized. And what they suffered from was trying to feed all the information back to Washington, analyze it, and then have it trickle back down. And as a result, they were relatively unresponsive or much slower in responding to the crisis and were, you know, deeply and roundly criticized. 
and part of that was due to their, you know, the historic structure of how they've been organized and run. And I was somewhat involved involved in helping to evolve that while I was at DHS. To the, to the credit of, of Secretary Mike Chertoff, who's a brilliant guy, when when he hired me, he goes, what do you think of the structure of DHS? I said, well, it, it's the, you know, agglomeration of 21 different previous government groups. And I said, it's, it's kind of a centralization thing, which is very contrary to, you know, what I've wrote, wrote, written about and worked on. He goes, I know that. And he goes, I want you to come in and help me decentralize this thing in terms of how we, we coordinate and do activities. So there were some very specific things I got involved with post-Katrina with uh, FEMA to help link them actually to social media. We had a brainstorming session in Silicon Valley with Google and Facebook and um, uh, Craig's, Craigslist and other social media groups to learn what do they learn in the moment of disasters and what, what could DHS and FEMA do for them to actually support them and then how were their platforms being used? And that led to a marriage or a set of uh, joint working and protocols that uh, went to use only six weeks after we met because uh, another hurricane was was heading into to Texas at that time. But so so if you back to DOD strictly, and of course, Coast Guard is part of the military, even though it's within uh, uh, DHS. Um, you look at the Navy, there's a lot of decentralization in, terms, uh, decentralization in terms of authority onto the vessels there. Or look at the Navy, uh, the, uh, the SEALs. You know, Navy SEALs operate. They, there's a coordination factor in getting them onto their mission. But once they're on the mission, they're, you know, uh, uh, largely uh, self-directed. And there's been a lot of interest in this, the, the SEAL groups and in JSOC, Special Operations Command, in, in the starfish and spider concepts because of how decentralized you've got to be as you, you get out there closer to, to the battlefront. So I think it's very applicable to the military. It's definitely applicable to cybersecurity and cyber strategies and in many other areas. I think it can be applied. And, and I also want to say, I, th- I think DOD is an amazing organization. I think it's one of the best run government bodies on the planet Earth. Um, you know, it's, it's Singapore government maybe comes in, in, in second. They do an amazing job down there. But DOD is just an incredible learning machine, uh, management coaching machine. And uh, having worked in government as a civilian, as a uh, publicly, uh, politically appointed officer, I know how hard it is to get things done in government. And so I, I just have to tip my hat to all the good men and women in the services for what they do and, and, and how they get things done. And the fact that DOD and the chairman are embracing our book is, you know, I'm honored by that and just hope it can contribute to the continued evolution of DOD management strategies and systems. Well, the ranks are certainly full of good people. There's no doubt about that. Yes. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. Rigid structure squashes creativity, where innovation is desired. A certain level of chaos is a must. An open system, a leaderless organization, almost always leads to great creativity and people who want to contribute. Mm -hmm. How exactly does that dynamic work? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I, I think that, you know, all, all human beings want to contribute in life. I mean, mo- most people want to work. Most people want to contribute something to their family, their community, their company, their, their government, their military. So people want to contribute, but often people don't have a way to contribute. And well-designed decentralized systems are ones that give people the invitation to participate and then the incentives to participate 
and may have just enough rules to prevent the abuses that can develop in systems, in human systems, so that the participation continues, you know, on a on a on a healthy basis. Um, so I think there's just something innate in us in our psyche that that we all want to contribute, and and when we're allowed to, we do. So whether that's Amazon ratings, or you can go on and rate your, you know, rate the products, or in, in the eBay community, when you know people, e- eBay was the second online company. On sale was the first, but on sale didn't trust the buyers and sellers, so they would they would get the goods from one party, get the money from the other, and then they'd reship it. They sometimes inspect in the middle and they'd reship. Well, that added enormous costs, and other people said, "Well, this eBay model won't work because it's you have sellers that can be ripping off the buyers, and there's all kinds of trickery and thievery that could take place." But in fact, because you can rate and score sellers and rate and score other parties and and have access to data about their transactions, the community self-polices largely. And so eBay became a a tremendously successful company and phenomenon and on sale is, is gone. So it's an example of where the centralized approach was more expensive and less, less effective and a lighter weight model, but with community involvement has just taken off. And then, of course, that model got picked up by, by Amazon and many other, like almost all social media platforms, you know, have ratings of different participants. So you know what you're getting into. On the opposite side, we have what you call in your book, rigid management, leaders who involve themselves in every single detail. And they create a staff of basically zombies who will not think for themselves or take the mission to heart. And I think we've all worked for bosses like that. How does that play into the starfish and the spider concept? Sure, I'll share a quick story. I I spoke to the National Association of of Nurses in, in Texas some number of years back about the book concepts. And then I ran a separate uh, brainstorming session with about 15 nurses, men and women from around the country, and, and talked about what, what were their environments like, what were the hospitals like, or what were the clinics like where they worked. And it was interesting. Half of them thought that the doctors that, that ran the clinics they were in were like starfish and very collaborative, and half of them said they were spiders. And the ones that worked in environments where, they, where the doctors were very rigid and commanding and in charge, the morale was much lower. Mistakes were higher. And of course, the nurses didn't want to mention problems and issues because they're afraid of getting screamed at or blamed. And so they said that there's a huge difference in the culture. On the other hand, the nurses that worked in environments where the doctors respected them or was a supportive environment and more collaborative had much higher job satisfaction. They felt the results were much higher uh, in medical outcomes and in and far fewer mistakes. So when when environments become you know, too commanding and rigid, then then the participants in it can lose a lot of motivation. Now, at the same time, let's say you're you know prosecuting a war. Let's take a DOD example. You know, you don't ask every soldier, well, do you want to decide whether we go invade Iraq tomorrow or not? Do you, are you in or are you out or whatever? You know, you have to make a decision. We're, we're, we're going in, you know, and, and these are the different groups going to take these different actions. And it's a, a joint task force operation. There's Air Force and there's Army, there's Marines. And, and so you have to have a command structure. And so DOD is a fascinating hybrid because you, you have to have a, a hierarchical command structure to, to, to conduct war when, when you need to. 
Um, but you want to build the organization with a lot of collaboration, um, I think, as, as DOD does. And you want to enhance it over time so that, that people don't take, take more ownership for what they do. And it's a, it's a constant balancing act, I think, for managers and leaders. And, and one of the, the goals that I had when we wrote the book is I wanted to create a tool so managers would be, become more aware of their own management style and become conscious of when they should be more collaborative and in what instances you need to become directive. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. Management is a function and a responsibility rather than a rank. The idea of a leaderless organization is so alien to some people, they're unable to even consider the idea. In 1995, a man named David Garrison had to declare himself president of the internet, (laughs) perhaps the most useless job in the world. And uh, you make fun of the idea in the book, but then you found yourself in that exact same position. Please share that story with me. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty ironic. Well, David's a great guy. You know, he was CEO of an ISP, early ISP, the first one to go public. And so when investors were confused and didn't understand that the internet was so decentralized and they kept saying, well, who's the president? You know, he finally said, I am the president of the internet. And he, and he then could move on with his fundraising and he had a successful IPO. And so we, we wrote about that in the book. I, I, I interviewed him and at my beach house and we were talking and laughing about that funny story. And then, you know, <laughs> just some number of years later, not too many, about four years later, I'm asked uh, by Vent Surf and Esther Dyson and others, that they're the founders of ICANN. ICANN is a global internet coordination body, um, arguably the governor of the three key centralized things that need to hold the internet together, uh, uh, namely uh, the domain names, internet addresses, and thousands of what we call the, the protocol registries or technical settings of the internet. That things that make the internet one network as opposed to a million different networks make it look like one place. So ICANN runs those. And so ironically, I then got elected to run ICANN, um, which is a, a, a large nonprofit that works with every country in the world on internet coordination. So, uh, and then people said, well, I, Rod, you wrote about the president of the internet and you kind of laughed about it in your book. Well, now you're the closest thing. And, and it was really stunning, stunning to me. I had dinner with uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee one night and, and Sir, Sir Tim, uh, you know, invented the World Wide Web, the browser and the World Wide Web. And he goes, well, Rod, it's really nice to have dinner with the king of the internet. I said, you mean you? I mean, you, you created the browser. He goes, no, you're the king of the internet. You're running ICANN and ICANN is the most important central resource on the internet. And I was like, well, if Sir Tim uh, thinks this, this role has some importance, I guess it really does. So it was, it was, a, it was a great honor to serve that role. And by the way, the, the government service I, I had the opportunity to, to do beforehand was just amazing training for, for being in that, that position. So you got promoted from president to king. That, that's pretty good. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, in, in his words. I mean, the reality is when you go to ICANN meeting, you'll think it's more, more like chaos you talked about, a lot of shouting and screaming and people arguing over technical standards. And the meetings typically have 1,000 to 2,000 people, and it's very noisy. But but. Out of that cacophony, it's it, but ICANN is actually one of the most fascinating decentralized organizations in the world. It's a, a multi-stakeholder model, very complex that in, that engages 
almost all the countries of the world, all of them are technically involved that have uh, internet domain names. And over 150 are involved in the government advisory committee. There's the ISPs, there's the internet registries and registrars and civil society. Anyway, it's very complex and, it, and it's very noisy and at times seems very inefficient, but it works remarkably well to, to, to keep the internet uh, uh, domain name system coordinated globally and to keep the internet running. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. A catalyst starts a process, then gets out of the way. Now, you mentioned something in the book called a catalyst leader. And a catalyst leader requires vulnerability. In an organization like the Defense Department, you're expected to be on top of everything, especially at the highest levels. And if someone asks you a question, you better have a good answer. And yes, they teach you to say things like, I don't have that answer right now, but I'll get back to you. However, you always run the risk of getting a response similar to, um, how in the world is it possible for you to humanly not know that? How in that environment do you allow yourself to be vulnerable? Well, it's a really good question, but you know, I I just met so many great people and leaders in the Department of Defense, and and a lot of them were extremely uh, humble and, and genuine humans. I mean, even the generals and lieutenant generals and major generals, just just exceptional people. And and the truth is, you can be strong but also have the strength to express vulnerability and feelings, whether that's doubts about something. Now, if you're the leader, you're not going to stand in front of your group and say, I'm feeling really insecure right now and I'm doubting all these things. But you, but you may go into your office with some of your lieutenants and sit down and say, you know, I, I feel a little bit queasy about where we are in this, you know, and what's the information we have for conducting this mission or taking on this challenge. And, you know, I, 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 what, what, do you, what do you guys think? And gals, what do you what do you think we should do here? And um, so I, I think that the great leaders lead with the heart. Many many great leaders lead with the heart. And when you lead with the heart, you do show vulnerability. You show your emotions, um, positive and negative. Sometimes happiness, sadness, anger, and it's learning how to kind of do that dance and fulfill your mission and fulfill your role and still remain the leader. And it is also why sometimes they say that being a leader is the loneliest job in the world because the leader can't always share all those vulnerabilities and emotions. But then that's also why, you know, you've got, you know, your family on the outside. You, you can't talk about sensitive matters, but you can talk about the struggles of your heart. So I, I, I've just worked with so many great heartfelt leaders in DOD, whether it was Haas Cartwright, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who I met with every month when I, when I ran my job or amazing people like Lieutenant General Charlie Crooms, who ran DISA and JTFGNO. When I worked with them uh, uh, very, very closely, or Major General John Davis, these are, these are great human beings. And I think that that's one of the things DOD does really well. And I was, in fact, with a, a group of Major Generals, Lieutenant Generals, t- two weeks ago here at, at NASA at the Defense uh, uh, Innovation Unit. And, uh, you know, I'm just so impressed by the leaders that the the Department of Defense cultivates and and brings up. So I think we can be vulnerable, and it's kind of choosing how to be. Because the truth is, if you if you ignore your emotions completely, you're going to have you're going to have bigger troubles. Because we're all human beings, and, and you take it to the battlefront. I mean, my God, you know, people in Department of Defense have to deal with life and death matters, and 
one more story I want to share. And in fact, I'd, you know, I'd like to dedicate my remarks today to two people who served in the U.S. military. And one was Lieutenant Colonel uh, Drew Briner, who I worked with very closely at JTFGNO as we were developing the National Cybersecurity Center. And just a tremendous guy to work with. So intellectually gifted, um, great manager, leader. And one day he said, Rod, I need me to meet with you one-on-one. And I said, yeah, sure. Okay, let's, let's sit down. And uh, we sat down and he said, well, I'm not going to be here long. And I'm, so I'm going to be, uh, you know, moving off the team. And I just wanted to give you a heads up. And I'm like, oh, well, where are you getting transferred? And he goes, I'm not getting transferred. I'm dying. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I have Gulf War syndrome. And they're not sure exactly what it is, but my, you know, my blood and my bones are decaying. And, you know, I'm not doing well. And I don't, I think he'd be okay with me sharing this story, but this was just an amazing man. And we lost him. We lost him the following year, but I mean, he, this guy gave everything. And, and there's a lot of men and women out there who've given everything and, and whether they've lost their lives or lost their health or it made tremendous sacrifices. And the other, the other soldier I'd, I'd like to recognize today is, was a foot soldier in World War One, who just as he was approaching the lines, his group got hit by mustard gas. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, chemical weapons used in World War One, And he lost over half his lungs and was then debilitated for the rest of his life. And that was my grandfather, Knut August Beckstrom, who, you know, could never run again in his life or really exert himself for more than a few steps because his lungs just weren't there. They were, they were burnt by the gas. And so I want to recognize those two and so many other, you know, men and women who've served this country to, and, and I, my family has veterans going back to revolutionary war, but there's, you know, we owe our freedom to, to people who've laid down their lives. And, um, so I want to recognize all them and, and, and there's definitely emotional moments that certainly came into all those situations. Certainly puts into perspective some of the issues that we get wrapped up in, in today's world. That's for sure. Absolutely. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. One new member in an open network makes all other members more valuable. One of the great things about an open network is the sharing of information. Yes. You know, we sometimes forget no one person has all the answers. And every single person added to an organization brings additional value to that organization. Well, you know, I'm just so encouraged by the uptake of this book by the military community in the U.S. since it since it came out, you know, since I got was pulled into the work with the DNI and DOD starting back in in 2008, and and uh, I just salute the people in the field. I, I hope some of them will take a look at this book, consider it. Um, I'll share a vulnerable moment for me is um, General Kevin Chilton was running Stratcom and. He invited me to come and keynote a, a large speech in Omaha for about 1,500 officers. And um, uh, I like to go and settle myself before I get up on stage. And, and I, before I got on stage, I felt really nervous because I said, my God, I'm talking to people, to, to the leaders who are prosecuting a war and people's lives are at risk. And am I really qualified to get up on this stage and be a keynote speaker? Because what if I'm wrong? 
what, what, if, what if some of the ideas in the book are not the right tools for them? And I, I literally was feeling very insecure and doubting myself, you know, and, and, uh, and across from a guy goes, Rod Beckstrom, are you Rod Beckstrom? Are you Rod Beckstrom? I go, yes, I'm Rod Beckstrom. And it was uh, General Stephen Spano uh, from the Air Force. And he goes, oh, I, I'm so thrilled to meet you. I think he was a lieutenant general, three-star at the time. And he goes, I love your book. Your book's amazing. And I have everybody in my operating theater read your book, all my you know, officers. And, and it's just been an incredible tool. Thank you so much. And thank you for being here. And so he restored my confidence in myself. So I was feeling very vulnerable and doubting myself and, and here to get this beautiful testimony. And he was like, we were the only two guys in this huge room. Everyone else was at lunch. And then I, and then I settled and, uh, you know, and, and I could give a, give a hopefully good and useful speech. But so I, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, no one tool is right for everybody. I hope the book has insights that people in the field, on the ground, can consider it's it's for many people an enjoyable read and and it's something you know that they can interpret and contribute to if they take the time to read it and look at it i think it you know general spanish told me that he he felt that the book really helped describe the adversaries that the u.s government was facing at the time and as well as informing them on, on ways to think about internal operations but so there's a moment of my vulnerability in a <laughs> answer to your question. Sure. And I guess the lesson here for you listening, even high achievers have moments where they wonder if they have what it takes to succeed. So we all have those moments. You are not alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Leadership tip from the starfish and the spider. Once norms are established among an open community, those norms are taken to heart and enforced by members. President Ronald Reagan once said, One thing is an absolute fact. The goal is world peace. We are the leaders of the free world, whether we like it or not. Therefore, we are the only ones who can preserve the peace. Now, you and Ari Brofman wrote The Starfish and the Spider to help the world's work towards world peace. How do you envision that process playing out? Sure, sure. So, you know, peace is ultimately a state of the heart. And, and I mean, for people like me, I'm, I'm a deep believer, so I love God. And I feel that there's a, a peace in heaven that tr transcends all our understanding that's available to everyone. And through whatever approach they have to the divine. I'm, uh, I'm very open-minded. I, I come from a Christian background, but I'm very open-minded. But, but so peace is a state of the heart. And if you look at conflict in the world, and even if you look at cyber conflicts for a moment, because the, the cyber war is one that grinds on every second of every day as the top superpowers and others are all engaged in cyber offensive operations. And what I tell people is, if you look at what each superpower is doing in that space, it's really driven by sociology and economics at the root of it. And any unresolved issues that those countries have become manifest in the same way as we as individuals, and we have unresolved traumas from our past, and we all have, you know, pains and traumas from our past and suffering and you know, the def definition of a dysfunctional family is any family, right? I mean, so it, it, but so globally, we have these traumas and pains that we carry forward, you know, and so America was traumatized by 9-11, right? But what happened, it was so shocking. It was, it was actually 
traumatizing. And I was slightly traumatized myself. I, I lost my navigation abilities in New York City, for God's sakes, which is a grid. Streets run north, south, east, and west. And I'd turn two corners and I would get lost for a day. And it's like, that's not normal, but that's a, a common trauma, you know, uh, result. But we were traumatized by that. Russians are traumatized by the fall of the Soviet Union and the sense of loss. They feel they lost the empire. And so if you look at, at say, Russian activities in cyberspace, much of it is trying to be relevant in the world, trying trying to be seen, trying to, to have a role because they feel like they lost their power. And so so when I look at world peace, what I look at is a world of suffering of, of people and cultures who have lost lost or sense loss or perceive themselves as victims. And we've got to focus on healing those bits. What the U.S. has done beautifully, so a masterful example of this, is what the United States and its allies did after World War I, World War II rather, excuse me, where we ended the war and then rather than punishing the losers with reparations and wrecking their economies and humiliating them, which happened after World War I, instead, you know, Marshall came up with a Marshall plan or advocated it and the president picked it up. And we, we invested in these company, countries. We helped them develop their own constitutions. We gave them economic assistance. We brought them into the United Nations and created the United Nations as, as a platform for dialogue. But we basically helped to heal those countries. And now Germany and Japan, who were our enemies in that horrific war that 50 million people died in, are now two of our greatest allies. This is what we have to do in the world. And that's my hope and, and prayer for what we do. And I think that we can do that. Um, I'm personally very emotionally committed to understanding and contributing to improve U.S.-China relations. Clearly, the U.S. and China are the world's two superpowers going forward. And they've got to go through a, a dance and an evolution uh, uh, so that we create a, 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 more, a more stable world. And I think the American va values in many cases are, are what the people of the world aspire to. But China is a huge country and it has a role to play too. So I love America when we stick by our absolutely highest principles that were laid down by our founding fathers in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. And I think when we support those kind of principles around the world and we use, when we use our power judiciously, to enforce the rule of law and to, to create a good uh, environment, then it's a, it's a tremendous gift to the world. So th those share some of my thoughts. I hope we become more aware of kind of all of our own sociological issues and histories and resolving them so that, that we develop more peaceful society. And by the way, it, it's happening overall. Most people don't believe this, but the trend lines on peace in the world are going in the right direction over the last 10,000 years. I mean, in the caveman age, literally, I mean, 4,000 years ago, I think about 15% of the population globally died of traumatic uh, acts of violence. Um, and that's across the world, every continent. And so we're, we're getting better. And uh, I, I think that the, the trend lines are all positive. And it's hard to believe that when you see the, the news, but when you read the statistical reports, on peace globally, things are moving in the right direction. But so I, I think the DOD is just a phenomenal organization. I, I, I love the United States of America. And I think that like the founding fathers, I want every country in the world to be a great country. I want uh, to, to support a good and healthy global environment. And I'd like to see the U.S. Uh, you know, le leading in that, leading that way and, and leading in, in a global healing process. Where again, the, one last example, 
the transition in South Africa was remarkable after the, the, the fall of apartheid. And what Desmond Tutu and what um, uh, Nelson Mandela did with truth and reconciliation as an emotional healing process. So they said, basically, you can be forgiven. You may have killed someone, okay, or five people. But as long as you confess your crimes and you disclose them, then you will be forgiven of those crimes. And then the victims and their families at least experienced the truth and a healing process. And I think that that's an example of what the world needs. So I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm a realist, right? I mean, you can't have done the work that I've done inside the government and in the private sector in different places and have not seen the dark side, you know, of humanity. But I believe on the light side and, and I believe that, that there's a, a much better fu- future that each and every one of us can contribute to because the peace that each of us can bring to the table starts in our own heart. So thank you for that question. Rod A. Beckstrom, co-author of the book titled The Starfish and the Spider, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. Straight from the professional reading list of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Thank you so much for your time today, Rod. Thank you so much, George. Great insight today. Of course, for a deeper dive on the subject, please pick up your own copy of The Starfish and the Spider. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Leadership List. I'm George Maurer. And remember, great leaders never stop learning. Until next time, bye-bye. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Biesing, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott. We'll be right back.